0: This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book, and is number four of a simple series where we're dealing with salvation and some of its consequences. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together, and those of you who are listening to this tape recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while and read two chapters in the prophecy of Isaiah, 53 and 54, we have been reading (coughs) these two chapters, particularly Isaiah 53. I would just like to suggest in your reading, although we didn't do it ourselves this evening, that the actual section starts just three verses earlier at the end of chapter 52. You might just notice that, will you? Isaiah 52, verse 15. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently he should be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at the his visage was so marred more than any man, <clears throat> and his form more than sons of men. So, if you're not careful, you'll miss this. As so. Just as they were astonished at his marred visage, so they're going to be astonished at his exaltation. He's going to be exalted and very very high. That comes out again at the end of Isaiah 53. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, you see. But in between, there's an expansion of the fact that although he was to be very high, one day he stooped so low, and they saw no beauty in him that they should desire him. And then when you read, starting at verse 4, I don't mean to say when you're reading in public, But when you read verse 4 onwards, try to remember that one day Israel are going to look upon him whom they pierced. And they're going to mourn for him. And they're going to take with the words, as the scripture says, and turn to the Lord. And without saying that they will actually quote word for word, this is what they're going to say when they look upon him whom they pierced. Surely, this is a dawning consciousness on their heart and mind. We, don't, we didn't realize this. Surely, He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. We try to stress in our earlier study along this line of salvation that it was the work of a surety. A surety. The word surety in the Old Testament is the word that means to mingle. It means that the surety steps into my place and is so identified with me by God that although I ought to have suffered the bruising and the the stripes, my surety took my place. And Judah gives you an idea of what a surety's responsibilities were when he told Joseph, concerning his younger brother Benjamin, I will be surety for him. Of my hand shalt thou require him. And if I ascend not up to my father, and the lad be not with me, I shall bear blame, or the word is sin forever. That's our surety. Then there's one other feature in Isaiah 53 which I feel is worth the repetition. If some of you folks who are listening to me tonight say, we've heard him speak about Isaiah 53 before. Friends, I hope if I live long enough you'll hear me again. For we have to bring out of our treasure things old as well as new. And I would like everyone to realise that verse 6 and verse 12 have got uh, an identical word in them which is hidden in the English translation. Isaiah 53.6 All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord, now I'm going to change the rendering. And the Lord hath made to meet on him the iniquity of us all. Now look at the last verse. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bears the sin of many. And he became a meeting place for the transgressors. The same word is used in verse 6 and verse 12. He became a meeting place on the cross for my sin. And he becomes a meeting place at the right hand of God because I'm his child by redemption. And then one further feature. It says in verse um, 11. He shall see of the travail of his soul. So he doesn't minimise that what our Saviour went through was travail. Great distress. But it says, and he shall be satisfied. Think of it. He is satisfied. I can understand we can say I shall be satisfied because of the work done for me. But he is going to see you and me standing righteous, forgiven, accepted, and children of God and he's going to be satisfied that it was well worth it altogether. It's almost impossible for us to take that aspect, but it's there. Well, if we're not careful, we shall find our time is up and Isaiah 53 will still be before us. And of course, we want to be fair with our listeners. So this evening, we're turning our attention to a, another aspect of this great subject of salvation. He that believeth hath. Well, we know that salvation is ours because of the finished work of Christ and the link between us and that finished work is the fact that we have believed God and it's been accounted to us. Well, now, there are certain features that are stressed in the scriptures that come to us when once we know that Christ is our Saviour. And surely the first thing we need, before we need anything else, is the gift of life. Because if we hadn't life, all the promises will be unfulfilled, and all the blessings will be unenjoyed. So I turn to the first epistle of John uh, just in order to demonstrate this. And what we are seeing this evening will be nothing startlingly new, but it'll be blessedly and gloriously old, and the basis upon which all our ultimate hopes must rest. One Peter one John five. Verse 11, onwards, and this is the record, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. One of the things that Scripture emphasizes is that when you ultimately sorted things out with regard to all the ways and means in which things are accomplished, if you're on the right track, they'll lead you to the foot of Christ. You're not saved by faith. You're saved by faith in Christ. It's Christ that matters. Your faith had no more you than anything else if he was not trustworthy. So, this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. And conversely, He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And there's the sharp cleavage. There's no statement here about what company you belong to, what dispensation you're under, whether you believe the right division of the word of truth. It doesn't ask that question at all. It's one simple question. What is Christ to you? And that settles your destiny. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know. You see, the gospel was written that you may believe. And the epistles are written to those who believe that they may know that you have eternal life. So there's one great blessing which is associated particularly with redeeming love. That the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And this life is in His Son and at His disposal. Well then we have another blessing which is associated with our calling and that is the epistle to the Ephesians will give us the passage, chapter 1. After we are assured that Christ has given us in exchange for the wages of sin, the gift of God, the thing that troubles us mostly is the fact that we are conscious of our unworthiness to stand in his presence. And the thing that troubles us is not that we're ignorant, and not that we weren't born in high-class society, but that we have sinned. We are conscious that something has come in between us and a holy God. And there can be no trifling with that holiness. And the one great desire we must have in the first is the assurance that he who loved us so as to give his Son for us he did it because he was going to forgive us. Now you might say that God has got such almighty power that he could have forgiven every one of us without going to the extreme of sending his son. But we learned in our earlier studies that there's something even greater than God's might and that is God's right. God is not an almighty one that can play fast and loose with right. He's governed by his own righteousness. And so we found that he was a just God and a saviour. And the whole plan of salvation is that he might be just. No one about you. That he might be just and the justifier. So the forgiveness of sins must come in. So we have in Ephesians chapter 1 these words. Verse 7. In whom we have redemption through his blood. I ask you to notice I've turned to Ephesians. I could have turned to Matthew. I could have turned to earlier scriptures. I could have turned to Old Testament passages. But there are some of God's people who are so refined that they have come to the conclusion that the sacrificial element in the scripture belonged to pagan and early crass periods, but we are now so advanced with regard to philosophy and education and general upbringing that there's no more need for us to stress that God necessitated a sacrifice that he can forgive us just without that. In fact, they argue, they argue that an ordinary father down here, he doesn't need a sacrifice before he gives his little child, and what about God? But you see, the relationship isn't the same. God is not your father until you're saved. God is your creator. And God cannot pass over iniquity and justify ungodliness. And so, he went to the extreme of not sparing his Son, so that you and I should be able to lift up our heads in that day and answer the challenge. Who is he that condemneth us? And our answer it is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again. So it says here, this highest of all spiritual epistles <coughs> stresses the blood of Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Now our version says wherein he have abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Uh, Please remember there are no full stops or commas in the original Greek version of the New Testament. One solid line of letters. So you're not interfering with any part of scripture if you question the punctuation marks and the verses. Uh, Have you tried to think how you can abound in prudence? Because the word abound means to flow over it's to fill a cup and fill it over the brim and run into the saucer with prudence. Oh no, that's to go very carefully, Wait and measure. So I'm just stopping to ask you to split verse 8 into two parts like this. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath overflown and have bounded toward us, full stop. In all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, when God teaches, it's little by little and bit by bit, but when he saves you, it's one glorious grand work completed at once, abounding riches. Now this word forgive is the word that is borrowed from the Old Testament picture of the Jubilee. The very word that is here translated forgive It's found in the Greek version of the Old Testament when it speaks about sounding the trumpet of the jubilee or proclaiming liberty. You see, there are two words for forgiveness if you look at Ephesians chapter 4. Chapter 4, the end of chapter 4. And be ye kind, doesn't say be ye just, be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Now, that's not the same word that we have here. Because, friends, however much you'd like to wish to do it, you can't set your brother or sister free. You could be kind to them, and you could be gracious to them, as this word is. But forgiveness alone can come from God. For this word means to set a captive free, to break the shackles and give him a new standing. God alone can do that. So your forgiveness is only a faint shadow. You forgive him because you've been forgiven. That is to act very graciously to him. But God not only acts graciously, he acts in the riches of his grace. He takes the shackles off. He sets you who are captive and in bondage God's free man. So that's a point that salvation brings you. And then, just in passing, I remember those pregnant words that we have in Psalm 51 where a repentant um, David He says, blot out, wash me. You notice the two things? The word blot out signifies an account, and wash me signifies I'm unclean. He says, do the both, and God does the both. The blotting out cancels the account, you're justified. Wash me, you're sanctified. Oh, what a complete salvation we have. Nothing left to chance. Nothing left undone. Blot out. Wash me. Now I'll come back to Ephesians 1 (coughs) for another of the consequences of this wonderful salvation. You do know, and I'll mention it again because we're always having new hearers, that the first 14 verses of the epistle to the Ephesians are the charter of the church of this new calling. It divides itself into three parts by the repeating of the words, unto the praise of his glory. You see, those words come, or similar words, in verse 6, and in verse 12, and in verse 14. Three times to the praise of his glory, or the praise of the glory of his grace. And verses 3 to 6, speak of the work, or no, the will of the Father, before the foundation of the world, choosing, Verses 7 to 12 are the work of his Son redeeming. And the remaining verses 13 and 14 are the witness of the Spirit sealing the believer. The work of the Father, the will of the Father, sorry, the work of the Son and the witness of the Spirit. Now at the close of the will of the Father we have these words. To the praise on verse 6, of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Now two things here. This word accepted is used only of one other person in the New Testament, and that is the Virgin Mary. When the angel came and saluted her, he said, Hail thou highly favoured among women. And that's the word here. It's something we can't quarrel with, is it? Surely when we see what Christ has been made to us and what we find ourselves to be in him, we are highly favoured among mortals. This covers all the word acceptance and everything else with it. Highly favoured in the estimate of God. And not only so, in the beloved. Now, I do know some folks are very much addicted to using the word love and I've got a great reticence over that. I hope that those I love have penetrated beneath the thick skin and are conscious that it's there. I do remember when I was in Lancashire going into a shop and when the lady at the counter said, yes, love, I said, what do you say when you mean it? And she looked at me in surprise. Because, you see, you can say, talk about love to such an extent that it means nothing. But God has picked out a very precious word here. We are accepted in the Beloved. And you, you look at that word in the New Testament, you won't find it all over the pages. Only here and there. Isn't it a wonderful thought that this is the outcome of this great salvation wrought on our account? And while we have Ephesians, we look at chapter 2. Not only are we accepted, but we have access. If you look at chapter 2, verse 18, For through him we The both, the article is used there. The both, that is to say the Jew and the Gentile, the middle walls gone that separated them. For through him we the both had access by one Spirit unto the Father. Not only access. Verse 12 of the next chapter. In whom we have boldness and access. Now boldness and access is a figure of speech which is not quite English. It's stressing the access by putting it together like that with an and in between. Boldness, he says, no, he says, access, access, I should think we had, we got boldness of access. It's emphasising that, you see. You fancy that we were so far off that we were called sinners of the Gentiles and outside dogs. No covenant relationship, no fathers that we could speak about to whom promises were made. And God was the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and we were without Christ and without hope and without God in the world. And now we not only are brought near and made nigh but we have boldness of access. What a work must have been accomplished to make that transformation acceptable and possible. So should we come back to the Epistle to the Romans, chapter 5 and see again the basis of this access. Romans 5. These verses, Romans 5, 1 to 11, finish the outside teaching of the epistle to the Romans. After that, it's an inside teaching. And one of the differences is this. The outside teaching of Romans deals with sins, with an S on the end, and faith. And the inside teaching of Romans deals with sin and no reference to faith. Uh, you might have to puzzle that out. Outside it's the law of Sinai. Inside it's Adam and the Garden of Eden. Now I've dropped all the hints I can without taking up more time. Now we're coming to the conclusion of the outside story. Chapter 5. Therefore. This is a, a, a word that means a, a, an argument is being brought to a conclusion. Having said all this that I've said in 1, 2, 3 and 4. Therefore. Being justified you say, why do you stop there? Because we're justified by faith. Oh yes, but if you haven't come to the conclusion already that you're justified by faith, there's something got wrong with you. You can't have got to chapter 5 without knowing it. And the words by faith more likely belong to the next piece. Therefore being justified, and there's no other way of being justified now, by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not only justified by faith, but by faith we have peace with God. And the word peace is a word that can be very much misunderstood. It doesn't mean that you're half asleep and you're all quiet. The Old Testament word shalom means something which is complete, something that has been satisfied, something that has recompensed, something that has completely blotted out the account. Oh, it's a most wonderful word. The effect of righteousness shall be peace. You see, we use the word peace in a lesser sense. Two nations are at war. They deplete their exchequer. They can't afford any more, so they sign a peace treaty. Well, that's not peace, because as soon as they can go at one another again, they will. But when God signs a peace treaty, the word complete, complete satisfaction, is written across it. The whole question can never come up again. That's peace. And the New Testament word, Irene is made up of possibly words that mean one by means of two. That's a strange idea of peace, isn't it? But it isn't. It's making two who were at longer edge one. If anyone here is named Irene, you, you're remembering that when you lose your wood a little bit sometimes, if you might possibly among that cast. Irene, what a word. One by means of two. What a word for peace. So he says. Therefore, being justified, by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith. Don't you see? Once you've got your sins forgiven, once you're at peace with God, the veil is rent and there's no more division between you entering into his presence. These are some of the outcomes of this wonderful salvation. There's one other passage I think we let Peter speak to us in this. And that is in the first of Peter chapter 3:18. It's a verse that we can well include in our list, 1, Peter 3:18. "For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. The just for the unjust." you see there's substitution there. No, no blinking it, no minimizing it. He suffered the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. And that's the word translated access. Well, the word access is pedagogy, and the word bring us to God is prosago. pros ago, pros-ago, Both the same word, different grammatical forms. Bring us right into the presence of God. And so, two aspects are coming before us. In the epistle to the Hebrews, the exhortation is, let us draw near. That's wonderful, isn't it? The epistle to the Ephesians says, we have been made nigh. That's even more wonderful. Let us draw near. We have been made nigh. Either of them almost sound too good to be true, but both together give us wonderful, blessed assurance. And then there's a connection between faith and hope. You know, the uh, epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 11, the great chapter that gives us the samples, types and shadows of faith. If you've got the epistle to the Hebrews in your mind, the whole structure, you know that in chapter 3 and 4, there are examples of unbelief of those who died in the wilderness. That is balanced with chapter 11 of the examples of belief they're not merely not one side only in the story, both. But the first verse is what I'm thinking of. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. And that word substance has taken on a new meaning within the last generation because in our lifetime, great bundles of papyrus have been taken from the sands of Egypt. Many of them were just stuffed into little crocodile skins in a sacred cemetery and so preserved in crocodile skins in the hot sands of Egypt for us to read today. Just waste paper. But some of them have yielded wonderful sidelights upon the words that are used in the New Testament, as they were used in the Apostles' own day. And this particular word, substance, was found to come over and over again in a series of papers that dealt with a law case, in which the lawyer, when he was referring to the title deeds of the property, continually use this word substance. Would you like to think of that and read it like that? Now faith is the title deeds of things hoped for. And so Abraham was willing to dwell in a tent as a stranger in the land of promise because he looked for a city which had foundations. He got the title deeds inside that tent of a city that was not going to pass away. And so he was quite willing to be a stranger, even though the land of promise had been given to him. And we have much the same thing. Our hope is associated with our faith. And our faith and hope are the guarantee, as it were, that God has given us the title deeds of not merely a city which has foundations like the heavenly Jerusalem, but of a position which is far above all principality and power, but that's impinging upon dispensational truth. There's one other feature which is of vital importance to us that I'd like to include in this, and that is the question of sonship. <coughs> now, sonship is more than life. In a general way, I wouldn't like to say every every example, but nearly every passage in the authorised version where you read in John's Gospel or John's Epistle the word sons, you want to retranslate it and call it Children. And when you read in Paul's epistles the word children, you want to retranslate it and translate it sons. Why they took that line is not for me to say. But you see, it's one thing to be a child of God in the family of faith. It's another thing to be the firstborn child of God and receive the adoption and be given the name of the patria. You know, we were looking at Ephesians when it says, the whole family in heaven and earth is named. The word family, there is the word patria. And it's looking to the patrician of the Roman power who, had, who went into the marketplace, put down the redemption money, adopted one of those men, gave him the freedom, and he took the name of his patrician as his name. It was done over and over again. That's what God's done to you and me. So I want to look at the word adoption. You'll find it in... Um, Romans, Romans, the um, ninth chapter, where it belongs specifically to the people of Israel only. I'm looking at that just to give you the first meaning. Romans, the ninth chapter. The apostle is very, very concerned about his own people because he can see that blindness is settling down upon them. And it wasn't long before the end of the Acts came and Israel were dismissed and the salvation of God was sent to the Gentiles, and we come under that new move. But here he's making a prayer. Verse 3. I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ, for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Notice he's very specific. He's not saying spiritual Israel. He says, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Of course, the Apostle was behind the scenes, behind the times, I suppose, because people will tell you today that we're all Israelites today. Well, he didn't know a word about that, and I think we'll keep with him for the time anyhow. Who are Israelites? Now, what's their peculiar prerogative, Israelites? If you haven't got the Bible open, and you didn't know this, it's possible you wouldn't have put this first. But this is what the Apostle puts first. To whom pertaineth the adoption? Now, the the adoption as a richer meaning than what we use today when we have an adoption. This was taking somebody into your family, investing him with a firstborn's position, and making him your heir. So will you turn with me to the epistle to the Galatians, where you have this worked out a bit more clearly. And this presupposes that you know something of the law that was in operation when the Apostle Paul was living. Chapter 3. Verse 15, brethren, I speak after the manner of men. And when Paul says that, as he does once or twice, he's not going to quote scripture. He's going to quote something about your manner of life that you know. I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant or will, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now that was a statement of truth that the apostle knew was Galatian law when he wrote it. Today you could make a will, and then you could have a codicil added to it. You could have it scrapped and start all over again, but you couldn't do that in Galatia. It was a serious matter because it involved the tribe. It involved all sorts of things with regard to the people as a uh, as a community. And when once you'd fastened and fixed upon the one who was to be your heir and adopted him, you couldn't alter it. Well, now his argument is this: verse 17. And this I say, I'm saying this that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years afterwards, cannot disannul. He said, surely you're going to agree with this, that if you can make a will that cannot be disannulled, you're going to say God can't make a will? The promise made to Abraham stands just the same as ever, even though Mount Sinai came in and Israel are being punished for their sins, God's callings are without breaking, and so all Israel shall be saved in spite of it all. Well, now that leads on to chapter 4. Now, I say, brethren, that the heir, or no brethren there, I'm sorry. Now, I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. So, he's telling us, that while a person is in his minority, he's under tutors and governors. Verse 2. Until the time appointed by his father in the will. And then, when that takes place, he assumes his own responsibility And he bows the tutors and the governors out. So he says, verse 4, that when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So this is the will, putting us into the place of the firstborn. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And you may not know that that's an important addition there. You see, the things we don't know. Why should it be important to see Abba, Father? Do you remember that it only occurs three times in the New Testament? Once in the Garden of Gethsemane, our Saviour used it. Once in the Epistle to the Romans, once in Galatians. And if you knew the rabbinical law, no slave was ever permitted to use the word. He must be a free man who could address the uh, address him as Abba, Father. So it's all insisting upon this relationship, sonship, the adoption, the heir. And that takes us to Ephesians chapter 1 where it says in verse 4, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated us unto the adoption. And the word predestinated need not frighten you, it's simply made up of two words to mark off beforehand, put down in the will, long before the time, the same as in other cases. So here we have some of the outcomes and consequences of salvation. Life, forgiveness, acceptance, access, peace, hope, and sonship. Well, that's a fair, a fair amount to be able to say in one meeting, isn't it? And only touch upon them. And they're all yours in the same way, by grace, through faith, sealed by the blood of Christ, the gift of God, un, uh, unmerited, undeserved, but yours because of his faithfulness. Now, there are three passages with which I'll finish, all found in the first epistle of John. The first of John, chapter 4, 17, says this. Herein is our love, now our love in the margins is love with us. This is not our love, but this is love with us. Herein is love with us, made perfect, brought right to its conclusion. That we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Well, what has it done for us? Because as he is, so are we, even in this world. That's almost unbelievable, isn't it? Because of what Christ has done for us, and what God sees us in him, we have boldness, even contemplating the day of judgment. For as he is, so are we. Whatever we have in chapter 2, Of this same epistle, chapter no, chapter three. Where where am I? Just uh, chapter three, verse two. That's right. It says, "Beloved, now are we the sons of God." So he's assuming that now. It does not yet appear what we shall be. I've met people who worry about this. Shall we recognize one another? Well, you might ask any other questions. Will you walk on feet? Will you flap wings? Or why I should leave it with God, I think, and wait. He says, we know not what we shall be. It does not yet appear, but I says, we do know one thing. We do know one thing that covers it all. When he shall appear, we shall be like him. We shall be like him. So far as it's possible for any of us to be like him. That's the pattern and the goal. And then, in chapter 2, verse 6, he that saith, now this is where we are coming to our responsibility. I hope that you've been listening to me with all the blunders I've made because of my shortness of sight and I misread my own notes and whatnot. That you've been saying to yourself, I hope, oh, what a wonderful thing this is that God has done for us. Well, now we're coming to the one and only time where we're asking one another, what are you doing about it? But surely that is a thing we should say. So it says here in verse 6 He that saith, he abided in him, ought himself also to walk, even as he walked. So you see, we can put those three together now. As he is, we are. As he is, we shall be. As he walked, all oh, by the mercy of God, let us seek that we may walk. Well, that's salvation again looked at from other angles. And as I said in the beginning, It's perhaps a simple subject because it's basic and we know all about it because we've trusted it for years. Nevertheless, I hope you endorse the spirit that inspired the children's hymn, Tell Me the Story Often, for I forget so soon. And if you say you've got infallible memories, be thankful for it and give me opportunity to stir up the the not-so-fallible, infallible memories of those who are sharing with us In the regions beyond.